0: Welcome to Join in podcasting, threading the teaching community within
1: and beyond. Today we'll be talking about student critiques or student feedback loops or prototype loops or whatever we call them, but basically students critiquing each other and then going back to work and working on it again and then coming back to the critique session. We'll be entering the classroom of middle school teacher Caitlin Kingsley where her students are working on student writing critiques.
0: Then we'll be talking to Dr. Ron Berger from Expedition of Learning about
1: uh, student feedback loops. And then we'll visit Dr. Lisa Palmieri of the Ellis School in Pittsburgh, where she will talk to us about their framework for action-based
0: learning. So let's go started uh, by going inside Kaylin Kinsley's classroom, uh, talking about the stream writing key takes.
1: Okay, so we're in classroom right now watching some kids do some peer editing do you want to just kind of walk us through some of the steps that they're doing
2: so i send them a google doc via google classroom so that i technically control the document and they don't have to share it with me um so that's the first step and so they wrote their essays in that document when they came into class today i gave them the name of someone else in the class and told them that's who they needed to share their document with um, so once they did that, and the other person, so once they shared and then received someone else's document, um, I gave them a peer review sheet where they color coded the document for specific things, specific structures that I wanted them to have in their essay, um, and then I had a checklist on that as well. And I can just give you a copy of it if you want it. Um, yeah,
1: I think I took a couple of pictures of them okay, as perfect. they're as they're working. So, like, have they? Did you do any training for peer critiques? before they went into this?
2: I had a lot of these kids last year, and so we did it a little bit last year. Um, And they do it a lot in English class, and so I just am sort of building off of that because I know that they have experience with doing it. So I walk them through the specifics of what I want, but in terms of a specific explicit training, not really because I just am going off the fact that I know they do it in English.
1: And then as they're critiquing, is it only written critiques or do they also have discussions on this at the end?
2: Um, I didn't specify it to them this time because I forgot, but normally what I'll do is I'll say, you know, you're mostly working independently, but if you've got questions for the person whose essay you're reading, feel free to have those conversations with them to make sure that you kind of understand what's going on. And then afterwards kind of in the other direction. So if you receive mm-hmm. feedback and you have questions about that, feel free to go. That's why it's important that they have who, whose paper they read but also their name so that the person who receives the feedback knows who to go to if they have questions about the feedback. And then do you guys
1: do any, so it's informal. any group critiquing maybe of another student's work or maybe another piece of work to sort of get them ready for this? Do you guys ever, as a class, throw something up on the screen and critique it together.
2: We haven't, but it's not a bad idea.
3: (laughs) (laughs) What would you guys say to teachers if they're not getting high quality work? Could they learn something from this? And what would you say to them that they could do differently? Austin had to use this photograph as his model and he had to draw an accurate scientific drawing of this butterfly. This is called a tiger swallowtail. I knew it!
4: about it, the angle, because, not to be mean about yes. the angle, it's just not exact, so... Um, okay,
3: so show me, come on up here, Todd, show me where, what you would ask him to do slightly differently.
4: Um, like to make it a little longer.
3: Longer where? Draw like, where you would do it. Right there. Okay, so pull this out longer. Yeah. That's very specific. He
4: made, like, a lot of progress, he persevered doing it. Um. His friends were honest
3: with him. What was it about the kinds of advice that they gave that allowed him to get better each time? Hassan?
0: Well, they told him what was wrong about
3: it. Did they say it's just wrong? Or were they more specific? About it?
0: They were more specific,
4: but they weren't mean about it. He Bradley. made six drafts.
3: And so is that, a, is that something that other kids should learn from? What yeah. we learn, What should we learn from that?
2: Because.
3: Good. So if you can keep, if it's not right, you can keep doing more drafts to make it better. You just don't use things in your head. You want to
2: use a um, sharp eye.
3: Good. He used the eyes of a scientist. Great. You were
0: just watching uh, a clip from Dr. Ron explaining the power of creating student works of excellence and they're promoting those student critiques and explaining the
1: Austin's butterfly. These images that you're seeing here are our attempts to replicate this process. And this was done just over a week as students were studying the adaptations, physical and behavioral adaptations of insects. They had the daily activity of critiquing their illustrations with each other and then producing them again. You can see some of the
0: the cool details they, they came out with here. So let's go right into his Google Hangout with us a couple of weeks ago.
3: Um, yeah, I'm Ron Berger. I, I'm based right now in uh, Amherst, Massachusetts. I work for Expeditionary Learning, which is a nonprofit network of 160 schools, K to 12, across the U.S. It's a mix of district public schools and charter schools and a few independent schools mixed in. And uh, we've been around for about 20 years. And in addition to working to support schools that are inquiry based, and character-infused and project-based, uh, with a focus on high achievement as well in standard measures. We also produce uh, open-source materials, curriculum videos, uh, online resources, student work models um, that we distribute as much as possible for free to sort of promote this more uh, deeper, deeper. Learning, that a sort of learning approach to teaching and learning. My my personal background is that I was a public school teacher in the K-6 to realm for 28 years in Massachusetts. I did my graduate work at Harvard with Edward Gardner and then was part of the founding of this network, Expeditionary Learning at Harvard, was a a partnership between Harvard Graduate School of Education and Outward Bound, the wilderness organization that founded this group, Expeditionary Learning. Um, And I continue to work with Howard and with the team at Harvard, and I teach a course at Harvard Graduate School called Models of Excellence, which is what we can learn from looking closely at student work. And so, and then my work now is a lot of traveling, speaking, writing, and consulting with schools and districts.
1: Um, I got to know you a couple of years ago through a conference, uh, the BLC, in Boston where someone showed the video of Austin's butterfly and I, I was overwhelmed with this whole process of student critique. I've played around with it a bit in class myself, mostly in the writing process. Um, can you give us any sort of hints and clues of sort of how to set up that that method of getting students to critique each other to push their work forward? Yeah.
3: Uh, my first thought about is that we often use critique in a way that's not very effective for kids, which is the most common kind of critique that we see in schools nationally is asking kids to critique each other's work, whether that work is writing or math or science. And the kids don't actually have the vocabulary or, or skills or vision about how to kind of offer really useful critique to each other. So I think we need to start the critique... By modeling what critique is and by with models of where we're aiming. So I would suggest that critique starts with critique lessons, where the teacher is sharing with students lessons of what he or she hopes students will be able to achieve. And the students are working together to look at pieces of work and develop a quality. They they set they create criteria what quality might and categorize and sort what is a good math solution look like, what does a good essay look like, what does a good story look like, what a good lab report look like, what does a good research report look like. when they develop that clarity, they then have a list of dimensions of what they're aiming for. Can they can work together with you as a teacher to build rubrics around that. And once you're narrowing down what you're working on, then I think they're ready to do peer. If you're looking at one particular dimension of that work, then you go over that dimension with the students, they critique it in a model, and then they can turn to each other and critique it in each other's work. But absolutely I think it's difficult for kids to give thought to each other that can push it. So I'll pause there and see if that raises questions or or resonates with you and what your practice.
1: Well um I guess I'm, I'm thinking as soon as you started talking about critiquing, something that has been, been passed around in readings lately about critiquing from the teacher being kind of like coaching music or coaching a sport, where you want to catch the kid in the process and talk about it right there and then give them an opportunity to go back at it. Um, does that relate kind of to what you're talking about? What I witnessed on the video is a lot of critiquing of kind of the kids uh, going and working on, on something, bringing it back to the group, and then giving feedback and then going back. Um do you think that fits with a teacher stepping in and sort of coaching in the process at the same time?
3: Well, I think they are two related, um, different processes. In EL, experiential learning, just for clarity, we've been distinguishing between what we call lesson, where, to use your sports metaphor, it would be watching videotape of a of a game that you are, in. and out what's working and what's not working as a model of what we need to do next versus pulling aside an individual and giving him or her specific feedback on on her next steps or his next steps. And we would call that descriptive feedback. So we would say we give descriptive feedback to individuals to to move their work uh, or performance forward a little bit. Uh, And that's Crucial, so we'll continue to do that. But in addition to that, we need to do a whole criteria, which is like collecting and thinking of putting that together.
1: You cut off on the very last part. Um, I got the part about the descriptive feedback where, where you want to coach individual students. And then in the second part, um, I kind of didn't follow the whole part, but I, I think I got the gist of. That's more where you take a more documented artifact and critique that as a class so the student can reflect on the actual action and then go back at doing it. Is that more or less what it was?
3: Yes. The, the, the critique lesson is actually a formal lesson. Um, let me use a very specific example. If, if you are trying to fourth graders to write a five-paragraph essay, a, a perspective cool. the way <laughs> we go about that is laying out <laughs> on the course. And then telling the students what they hope they'll achieve, like. and perhaps they'll give them a rubric of how they'll be assessed. But the students themselves have no vision of what an essay is. They don't know what it looks like or sounds like or feels like. That. And then they produce it, of quality and the teacher then tries to use individual feedback to make those better. But it's kind of hard because they don't know what they're aiming for. It's if you ask them to turn to each other and give the same problem, they don't have a vision of what the end state is. If you use a different approach and you've collected some really good fourth-grade essays from prior years, if the first thing you do is you, get that and you read them aloud together and students critique, what do they like about them? What do they not like? What's working? In essays, and develop criteria then the kids get a sense of what a good essay is and they kind of know what they're aiming for. Which Which sets you up in a much more powerful position to do teacher feedback and for students to do peer feedback.
5: And that's what you mean by a critique lesson in which you're really modeling how to critique and at the same time establishing a target piece with specific elements. So you can see specific teaching points that you're looking for and you might have one critique lesson revolve around one of those teaching points or two of those teaching points where they're really critiquing and analyzing their peers' work or the whole group work with a specific purpose. Is that what you recommend? Exactly. So okay. that, that does align quite a bit with uh, with what we're looking for in TC in terms of the teaching points, but still looking to do a little more of that coalition and the symbiotic relationship. I, I think we still have some work to do to develop that.
1: Um, let me change gears here a little bit for a question I prepared regarding the primacy of self-discovery, where a teacher's task is to get students to overcome their fears and discover what they can do more than they think they can. Um, most of the daily learning objectives and rubrics we give to students are very confined with definite parameters. So what is the key to getting students to accomplish more than the defined goal set by the teacher?
3: Um. I see that as what are all the factors through which you can build student ownership of the work are doing? So, we're wanting to show what we call intellectual courage to step up and try things and allocate really, and building a culture to do that. And I think one of the most important steps in making work work. Very often, I feel like student work is shared with the teacher. And it's sort of students do their work, they turn it into the teacher, it gets turned back to them. When that comes becomes public, through gallery displays of the work, through presentations of the work, through students sharing their work in small groups and with the whole group, you can see students who are taking and step it up. And students see that they get credit for that, that they get that that it's not allowed to celebrate when they they take novel ideas and try something new.
5: That could be another model of what you want to show. It may not be necessarily all the dimensions of a piece, but there may be another lesson on critiquing, uh, looking for some of that intellectual courage. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that looks like or sounds like? Well,
3: in the last few years, in the EL schools, we've begun to use the the term courage in a different kind of way. People often assume their brain is not like there's creative kids and there's not bright kids. But in truth, we all have courage in different areas and less courage in others. And and so some of us might have mountain climbing courage, but not ocean courage. Some of us might have public speaking courage, but not snake courage, for example. And when you unpack that in, they very quickly talk about who has courage, you know, who has friendship, you know, and you realize courage is something that crosses all the lines that we all have to learn in certain areas and less in others. And so kids start thinking about where do I have courage in and where do I not? So a kid might have math courage, but not much writing courage, or vice versa. Or they, they might have math courage and no art courage. Mm-hmm. And so kids in our schools start talking about, "I'm working on my art courage. I'm working on my public speaking courage. I'm working on my math courage." And once a public speaking, other kids are about it and say, "Really nice job, Austin, showing showing some math courage there, or some speaking courage, or some right or some vocabulary courage, trying words you don't know." And I think that risk taking and stepping out of the box has to be something that we name and celebrate.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, A technology-related question, when you talk about all of this collaboration and all this making of work public, do the schools have um, particular tools and formats for using technology to make work public, to collect um, collaborative feedback?
3: I think think some schools have done a better job of collecting digital portfolios in ways that kids can share them with each other and get comments. But I think the solution is not so much technology, but in the dedication of time and structure that students get the sense that they're working on. It could be a technological solution, but it doesn't it? So there are certain structures which would compel students or impel students to present their work formally to their peers, to their classmates, to their parents, to panels of people. And I think building up those structures Make students feel like the work they're doing matters in a different way. There's going to be other eyes on it, and they should care more about doing a good job because it's not private work. So the, the structures that we use in our schools are student-led conferences where the conferences with parents are run by students and they have to show evidence of having done the work and met learning targets and shown what they've done in reading in writing in math and arts and character in, ath- in athletics. They collect evidence to share Um, passage presentations where those students present to panels of educators and community members to show evidence. Um, Those kinds of structures make it work public in a different way. They can include technology, but
5: they don't necessarily. Mm -hmm. So a, a challenge that I think we face in many schools relates to how to peg something like expeditionary learning to the curriculum. How do we take, okay, we're going to be doing this unit, how do we incorporate critique, the, the critiquing model and other aspects of expedition into the curriculum. How, how would you recommend we try to work on that and how can we make those bridges occur to really really be able to still um, succeed with our curricular pressures, but really try to incorporate some of these forward-thinking and student success-oriented
1: models into it. And I, I want to piggyback on, on that question, so we don't run out of time. Um, you talk a lot about, or I think you talk a lot about, a lot about field experience. And could you comment a little bit about on w- what are the best uses of field experience? Is it, is it best to spark curiosity, or is it best to go out and try out some content knowledge that you you learn in class? And then in that, could you talk a little bit about what what is done to prepare? What are the objectives during? And then, like, how, how is that used as a reflective ex- experience afterwards?
3: Great. The first thing I would say is that when you say you need to meet the curriculum, the, the curriculum is a broad set of standards and content and skills that you need to cover. And it differs by subject area and type of skills and content, how you should try to meet those, I think, and still have some passion and, and authenticity to what you're saying. So when you're talking about language art standards, there's no question that no matter what you study, you can build the same language art standards. You can build research skills, reading skills, writing skills, and speaking skills no matter what you're studying. So I never think that language skills are hard to address no matter what your topic. Mathematical skills are more tricky because sometimes they fit in an interdisciplinary study and sometimes they don't. They tend to teach them separately, project or problem perhaps, but not integrated fully. And then history and social history and science skills are skills that are sometimes defined by curriculum and you don't have a lot of choice because you have to teach these topics in social studies or science. In that case what we would suggest is that you look for local case studies. That take those historical or scientific content areas and make them a little bit alive and fresh for students. And that when you take those kids locally, that you get students out on fieldwork, and that the main purpose of that fieldwork is research. Whether it's scientific research or historical research, kids are going out to get data, to learn things, to draw things, to things, to take measurements, interview people. To, to collect samples, that they spend their time out of the classroom as research time, and that they bring things back from that research time to create something a field guide, a book of interviews, a write up, a and that perhaps they do more than one field work trip to the same site. That must raise questions. Questions for
1: you. Um, looking through your videos, one that I thought was uh, pretty impressive was the. Um, sorry, I'm reading through my notes frantically right now. There it is. Okay, um, I want to talk about a little about what you're talking about. How a teacher can also be designer of the experience, and in one of the videos, there was a, a cultural study of. Um, civil rights actions and they went and found people and interviewed them in the community and then, and then brought all that back and, made, and I think they made a book out of the experience and then brought everyone in and had a, a presentation. In these kind of experiences I see that as a very teacher designed or very localized designed experience. Um, what is your view as far, as far as how much the teacher should have the freedom to take that curriculum and design those kind of experiences? When very often in schools that's very difficult to do for the individual teacher and that they have to, you know, plan as a team and kind of go with the flow of, of what's in motion.
3: Well, that that particular example
1: came from
3: an, an institute that I ran in the summer for teachers from all over the country. The teachers flew to Little Rock, Arkansas in the U.S., where there was a famous civil rights event. Uh, there were nine students... African American students who tried to integrate Central High School in Little Rock and they were banned from entering and uh, the the uh, it became a national news story with the National Guard and the u s Army all showing up. The National Guard blocked them from coming in, and the u s Army showed up to force them to come in and and the governors <laughs> and the president a mess. And it was one of the breaking points in the U.S. civil rights struggle. So we had teachers from across America come and spend a week studying that case study. And we went out and interviewed local civil rights heroes. And they did oral histories of them and created a book over the course of that week with the intention that they could go back to their own schools and do a similar project. Now, those teachers were catered. 12 teachers, and so when they went back to their own school settings, and they didn't actually have to do the project about civil rights, the group that was featured in that video actually did go back to Portland, Maine, and do a very similar project where they went out and interviewed civil rights heroes because their curriculum included civil rights. But other groups went back and interviewed uh, Vietnam War veterans or went back and interviewed civil servants that were part of government, or went back and interviewed people that were historians working in colonial, U.S. colonial history, because their curriculum sort of confined them to a different time and a different place. What those teachers gained from the professional development experience was the skills and the courage to think, I'm going to use a case study locally that fits my curriculum, but will get my mind out of the interviewing real people to create something of value, And then they develop that using their own creativity to fit the curriculum and the, the circumstances they were in.
1: Wow. <laughs> that, very cool. <laughs> I didn't realize that it, it actually spread all over the place. Um, so just to kind of rehash some of the things you just said about taking this idea of creating this in this case, it's almost like a restorative practice community um, community experience, and then using a curriculum to, to kind of tie that in. It, go backwards a little bit and put yourself, you know, 20 years ago, working in a school where you're not really sure what your footing is and you're not really sure what you can do as a teacher. What would be the steps that you would go through to try to create such an experience?
3: Um. Although it's been a long time since I've been a classroom teacher of K-12 students over ten years now, I do work with young know, teachers all the time in, in our schools, and I always suggest that they start small. Because I think the quality of what you create with kids matters much more than the scope of it. I think the key is for kids to produce something far better than they thought they could possibly do, which changes their sense of self and changes their parent's sense of them as well. And if that's anything you all, if it's just a poem and an illustration they've done that's then bound into a class book that's of incredible beauty and quality, or an essay that they wrote that's part of a publication, or a single interview done in someone that contributes to a class of them, if the quality is high, it doesn't have to be a life-changing project, an earth-changing project. I would much rather have teachers do something small and beautiful and great that's memorable than to take on a project of really broad scope that ends up being sort of mediocre in quality and leaves the feeling that if we did it again, we could do it better, but it didn't come out so great right this time.
6: Because I really think it's the quality that
3: transforms...
1: Students what they can do. So on that theme, something that we wanted to ask was about the difference between process and product. And the message I'm getting is that the product is ultimately critically important, that you want the kids to produce and feel what it feels like to produce something of quality and to feel what that feels like when their peers and their community look upon that and give them feedback. When, when is it okay just to celebrate process? Um, we have this conversation in the reading and writing project sometimes where when we take a published piece, for example, do we always want to push for that published piece? Or sometimes do we just want to celebrate the process they went through to get to this point?
3: Well, I, there is a big push in education today not to focus on product, but rather to focus on, focus on process. On I think it's a great I think obviously focus on public. But it's an interesting
4: weird. If students not, not hearing work
3: that she's incredibly proud of, then there's a the tremendous loss in terms of the action being with that student with their family. Students have to be doing great work to change their business You can have a great process. And you can tell a student that she's doing a great job and give her all the kinds of affirmation. But if she hasn't seen herself accomplish something great, she doesn't change her sense of what she's capable of doing. That's not to say that everything we do in class has to be leading toward a final draft. Lots of the work in class can be practice work, exercises, getting better. When you're practicing an instrument, a lot of your but if you never get performance, you have no motivation to get great at your instrument. Mm-hmm. And we don't give our students a lot of chances to perform on their instruments. We just keep them practicing. Wow. That's
5: huge.
0: <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about designing those uh, learning experiences and making them more meaningful. And it all seems to me like um, this kind of approach we're right moving towards right now in, in education in general uh, has that insight as a core piece, like making learning meaningful. And I find this is this has like a more, if you, if you want to call it, human component. And it's going out there, like you just said a couple of minutes ago, going out there and learning in the field, what it really means to work with others and learn from others and then coming back and maybe checking on things and maybe reorganizing, try it again. And maybe, would you agree on that? Like this this is giving a little bit more importance to, to the process than the product itself, and not, not the need to push the students to, hey, you need to get this done by the end of whatever. Because then I think if we go that way, it's gonna look like a, factory where all we're doing is repeating that cycle. I like okay, you need to get this done and that's it. But uh, what do you think about that? Like how should we change that mentality of like okay I need to push you to this goal or to that product?
3: Well I think the current situation in schools is that kids feel like they're in a factory because they're a product, they're just continually assignments, and they complete them, and they turn them in. And they give them new assignments, they complete them, and they turn them in. It's kind of a treadmill of assignments. And because they're all final drafts, the quality of any one of them is not so great. And when they're corrected, they back to the And I think occasionally, we have got to decide value beyond the classroom. And in that case, it's not rushed. And the daily work that we're doing is getting ready and draft and practicing toward creating something of value to share beyond the classroom that they'll be proud of later that has meaning in the real world, that has meaning to other students in the school or people in the community, something worth displaying, something worth being proud of, sophisticated, beautiful, complex. So not all work. Hard. But as soon as they get the opportunity to do that kind of work sometime during the year, then they <coughs> develop that ethic of quality and that sense of pride that they can do really great work if they knuckle down and sort of sweat over it and kill themselves to do it.
1: <laughs> so I want to return to um, another technology question because a, a couple of us in the room um, work in the field of tech integration and we try to do as creative things possible and a lot of the things we're talking about is documenting our work and documenting our process as we go through things. Mm-hmm. Um, really impressed by the Emilia Reggio program's use of video documentary where they just walk around with kids and nature and talk to them about what's going on and then they'll take clips of that, bring it back into the classroom and that can instigate a whole field of study. Is this something you all are practicing as well, Um, and do you have any mindsets or methods you can pass on to us about that?
3: Well, I'm a fan of Reggio. And in addition to Reggio existing in Italy, there's been a, a lot of influence of Reggio in the U.S., a number of schools, independent schools in the U.S., and some public schools that have tried to take a Reggio approach. And... I think one of the important things to remember about Reggio is that they're obsessed with documenting student thinking and process. But they're also obsessed with beautiful final project work. Because the reason that Reggio has impressed people all over the world is that the quality of the work that their students do is far beyond what kids that age do anywhere else. So they haven't made the choice of process over product, they've embraced both. And I feel like the is this. They take the thinking of students seriously, and they take the work seriously. So when students come up with ideas, whether those ideas sound sensible or crazy, they really listen. They document them, they think about them, they discuss them, they unpack them. When students do work, they'll do all different kinds of work. They discuss that work. What were you thinking? Why did you do this? Why did you decide to do that? How could you make it better? Everything the students do, they take seriously. They view all student work as deep and important and political. And very few of us in the world outside Reggio do that. And I think as soon as we start to take our student work and student thinking much more seriously, the quality of it starts going up. So document in many ways, through photographs, through portfolios, through displays, making it public in every way we can, is one of the ways that technology can help us take that work seriously by documenting it and thinking about it and discussing it
1: together. Mm -hmm. Um, Seeing that you came out of Project Zero, or at least helped work with them, and there's such an emphasis on the multiple intelligence and bridging across symbolic forms to reach different intelligences, is this an important part of the expeditionary experience as well?
3: I think the closer you get
1: to producing
3: things for real-world audiences, and by real-world audiences, I just move beyond the classroom. It could be second graders producing things for kindergartners or producing things for fourth graders. It doesn't necessarily mean bringing it to a – senior center in the community or a museum or library. I could. But it means beyond your classroom and your teacher, you're producing something to share that you're proud of that shows property. And in the process of it, it's totally clear that it becomes interdisciplinary right away and starts calling on different and multiple entry points for students. Because if all you're doing is Class or a paper for the future, fairly unidimensional. It's just using your ability to fill out that worksheet or write that paper. But if you're producing as a, a set of educational tools and lessons for kindergartners, you have to think about your artistic ability, your writing ability, your ability to explain things, your ability to understand things, your ability to present yourself dramatically in giving a lesson, all of a sudden many parts of who you are as a human being and thinker have to be pulled in for that to work. Because in the real world, everything we do is pretty much interdisciplinary. It's only in school assignments that things get broken down into those very simplistic disciplines.
6: Mm. Oh, we have, oh, no, go ahead. Now, now that you mentioned uh, like, uh, the term real world, uh, is would you agree that um, project-based learning and using authentic context helps dissipate the opposition between real-life, real-world versus schoolwork, and, uh, and that's a way to motivate students to uh, do activities that matter and uh, have more impact and that they care about and make more effort on? Absolutely. It's a whole different <laughs> when they
3: feel like they're working on a project beyond their teacher. And that the skills they're working on, and the content they're working on, the knowledge they're working on, they have a reason to work hard on it because they're going to be sharing it with them, whomever you've chosen for your audience. That there are people out there that care about them getting good at this. And I think projects allow you as a teacher to coach your kids to produce things that motivate them to work harder. Um, it could be mostly in one discipline it could cross a whole lot of different disciplines but as, <laughs> soon as students are doing a project it almost by definition becomes interdisciplinary in some way because kids have to think of how to share their learning and knowledge beyond themselves and so they st- you start thinking about how are they best going to present what they know in a way that other people will understand and benefit from so yes i think Project Bigger is a great way to get kids connected to authentic work, which changes the whole quality of motivation in the school.
1: Um, Dr. Berger, I think we have time for about one more, and thank you for taking so much time with us. Um, you're talking about motivation and all the different ways the student is can, can be motivated. I, I would love to hear your thoughts on the importance of the celebration. I see this in, in the website that there are videos of kindergartners celebrating their work and presenting it to people they don't even know. um, Why is that such an important part of the student motivation and learning? Mm
3: -hmm. Well, pardon me if I'm competitive. When I was (laughs) in school, families came to the school for only one of a few purposes. They came to a chorus concert or they came to be play. Or they came for a sport. Families didn't come to school to see the academic work of kids. And so, as a kid, I cared a lot about how I was going to perform in sports because people came to watch me do it. And if I had a role in a play or I was singing, I cared about how I did then because people were going to watch me do it. But in my academic work, no one was ever going to see what I did. The teacher was the only person. My parents saw my body. But they didn't see the actual work. Nor did the parents of my friends. And so when you have the exhibition, celebration of learning, in which the high quality of those kids are shared with the community, there's a real different motivation for kids to get ready and show their best selves to the community. Because it's one of those things that they that they want their friends' parents and their priest, and their coach and their grandparents to come admire the work they've done that there are people they care about are coming to school to see their good work and there's a reason to try hard on it
1: that was our talk with Van Berger and now we're going to move on to a talk with Dr. Lisa Palmieri of the Ellis School in Pittsburgh I knew her from Twitter from following uh, hashtag DTK12chat Then at ISTE last summer, I ran into her at a Hummingbird, uh, Google was putting on a Hummingbird and Makey Makey workshop, and got into a conversation with her her about design thinking, and she was recommending for training going to either the D School or to the Luma Institute, and that took me on a longer journey out to San Francisco to go to the Luma Institute. Now we've recontacted with her, and she joins us for a Google Hangout here, where she explains the framework of action-based learning. Models. Uh, particularly within the design thinking model, and I'm going to start with this question that we also asked Ron Berger of the expeditionary learning. It's If a teacher's task is to get a student to overcome their fears and discover they can do more than they think they can, but most of our daily learning objectives and rubrics, we give students confined definite parameters. What is the key to getting students to accomplish more than the defined goals set by the teacher?
4: Yeah, I think part of that is definitely co-creation of what the rules are and what the ground rules are with students. So oftentimes when we're doing a design challenge, whether it's in a science or a technology class or it's something that is a fourth-grade reading class that we're doing a design challenge uh, and a maker project in, it's coming up with what does success look like with the students as co-creators. I think that's been one thing that's really Helped us get buy-in for design challenges is using design thinking, getting them over the risk, promoting a growth mindset. But it's also just that idea of, um, you know, sharing some examples. So you know, definitely sharing some examples with them of what success looks like, so they feel more comfortable with it. And then some specific methods. We love, for example, with the Lua Institute that you mentioned, using things like rose thorn bud that are a um, specific method they can use for critique. So I think for students new to doing critique, and, and there's always not a lot of time in class for students to do this, um, in our school that significantly shifted as we re-envisioned our curricular program, but it was a hard shift at first. When we really started moving from this very passive lecture base to active learning, students weren't sure how to critique, and one thing that a couple of them had really approached doing was setting up like a Facebook site where they could like post their, their work to Facebook and then students would critique on Facebook. We actually said no to that. We didn't want them to do that. Because to me, that technology mediating the real skill of offering a face-to-face critique is not something we wanted to do. So it became uncomfortable for them just to kind of like jump in and start. So we found that methods like the round robin, the rose thorn bud, um, storyboarding, these methods were really helpful, kind of like intermediary steps, before students felt really comfortable just going up and having a candid conversation, offering that feedback to each other. At first, when some of the students were more bold than others to just do that verbal on the fly feedback, there was a little bit of pushback, like, oh, they're being mean. And so we had to get over that whole sense of it's not really about being mean, it's about um, offering this feedback that we can grow from and we can iterate to the next step of the process.
1: So you mentioned the part about uh, technology and, and not letting the technology space take away from this, this face-to-face space, which is so important about reading affect, reading people's expression. Um, do you use tech tools in, in this student feedback model, sort of a synchronous time, asynchronous time, you know, in between classes, maybe collecting feedback? Is that part of your tool set there as well?
4: We do, for sure. I mean, our school has been a one-to-one laptop school for 13 years. So we've had a laptop and, and lots of technology in the school for quite a while. Um, we actually now in our high school have a hybrid bring-your-own-device program, too, so students can bring their cell phones in class. We've done lots of training in, in learning around mobile device use. And so we have found a few tools in particular that help the critique process, but it's always really important as an educator to be mindful The the technology-mediated critique is not the only form of critique they're they're learning or or that they're um, participating with. But for the uh, technology-mediated critiques, we do things like using OneNote. So students will um, keep a design notebook in Microsoft OneNote where it'll be pictures, uh, answers to questions, and those notebooks are shared among all the students in the class. The students are required to go in and... Take a stylus and annotate on top of the design and get feedback. We also use things, for example, like Panther Learning's Perceptive, and this is it was formerly called uh, Sword Peer Review. And what it allows students to do is to do um, ranking that allows some quantitative ranking of designs and ideas but also written narrative because that writing across the curriculum and particularly teaching students how to do technical writing is a really important part of the step. So um, the last two tech pieces I would say are have been important as a part of this process are also a sort of new tool called Verso Learning. So Verso um, is sort of a flipped classroom tool that supports Very active project-based learning developed out of Australia. And so um, we've been really pleased with starting to pilot Verso Learning this year. And then just the last thing I would add is that we do have a learning management system called Haiku. So you've probably heard of Haiku Learning. And Haiku is very important because students can do offline, asynchronous discussion postings there. Um, We will oftentimes require them to reply to so many students, and that is a little bit of part of the – rubric for how well they're doing in the online discussion is if they are actually critiquing so many students via written dialogue in the discussion thread. And um, voice thread is integrated with haiku learning as well. So oftentimes even students in um, modern language classes, for example, learning about Spanish culture, they may put slides or images inside of voice thread that the students can practice language skills and critique. So yeah, technology is definitely a part of the critique process related to design and making, but it's it's not more important than the, the physical face-to-face public speaking and dialogue that needs to happen as well.
2: Kristen? Yeah, go ahead. When she said
4: co-authors, before she talking about students
5: with students
4: or teachers? I can hear what she said, yeah. Um, in terms of being a co-author, what I'm saying is students and teachers being co-authors of what success looks like. So we we have actually worked with students in several classes. In, we haven't done it as much in elementary or primary, but in middle and in high school and upper school, really thinking about what does that A- look like. You know, I'm not a big fan of, like, the standardized grading system or points. I, I am a fan more of standard-based learning, alternative assessment, and digital badges and things of that nature that are emerging. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, we, we still are having to give students an actual grade on a transcript in terms of matricula- matriculation for college. And as a part of that, we will work with students to say, what does a 5 look like? What does a 4 look like? A 3, a 2, or a 1? And so co-create what the outcomes and what the measure of those outcomes look like, yes, it takes time out of your your class schedule and out of your um, precious minutes to be able to do that, but it's really worth it and and increases student engagement significantly.
1: So I'm hearing a couple of things and uh, I I did notice you have a strong Vygotsky and and Dewey background and um, I want to go back to this notion that Dewey defines knowledge as an action on one's environment. and the maker labs you have really fit this description. Do these problem-solving skills they learn during robotics and programming transfer to the classroom, and how how do you even document or or measure that?
4: I mean, absolutely. I I think the best best evidence of how these methods that they're learning and maybe some more of their STEM-focused classes are transferable are when students are using them, especially in humanities, um, in their writing classes, in their art classes, teachers that maybe have... Now, I would say teachers in both our humanities and our STEM area are really infusing even robotics and making into their classes. But probably, you know, three years ago when it was primarily just the STEM class doing making and design thinking, I think what got more of our faculty on board with doing this is that students would ask, hey, well, can I design a robot using the Hummingbird Robotics Kit to show how Beowulf would have you know, fought his, um, you know, his his adversary. Could I um, actually create a documentary to show how um, my piece of art responds to the environment? And so students were asking to do the things they were doing in these maker design classes. And, you know, I would say that some faculty embraced it, some didn't. But the proof is in the action. The things that students were producing were showing how deeply they're learning can be. It's synthesizing that learning in a way that we have not seen before. And what it has really shifted is even things like our Culture Jam. We have a student run diversity conference that happens um, every year. And I loved walking around to Culture Jam this year and seeing students using the what's on your radar method, the rose thorn bud the creative matrix, brainstorming about inclusivity and diversity. And this is not the prompting of faculty to do this. This is students taking these skills that they've learned around problem solving and embedding them into their own activities that they're leading. Um, We recently had a group of students I was the faculty advisor for that did um, a TEDx event. The theme of the TEDx event was about millennials and problem solving. And they focused on this idea of innovation through human-centered design, innovation through connecting the disciplines, innovation through collaboration. So I absolutely see the things that they're doing in robotics or programming, which are required classes for all of our students in middle school, that are then being transferred into their own initiatives and into things they're doing in humanities classes for sure. Oh, I can turn it
5: down
1: here. Sorry, we're getting... I have your volume cranked up over here, so we're like blasting you all over the room. So, going back to how you got these things started, um, let's say you're trying to get a maker lab started in elementary school or in primary school,
4: mm-hmm.
1: where where would you suggest putting it, and how would it fit yeah. like general curriculum?
4: Yeah, sure. For us, we wanted to start really small and we always have been big fans of piloting things and that's how you build the maker mindset within the culture of your school is to pilot it small, find a few teacher innovators that really want to do it and partner with them. So we didn't actually have a full blown maker space when we first started this like many schools. I, I actually do believe that when you start with the huge makerspace with all the expensive technology first, without the curriculum, without the teacher buying, without the training, without the mindset. That is not the way to go about this. So what we really did is start off with this idea of innovation stations, and um, we formed a team of teachers and tech folks from across the, um, the school, primary on up to high school. And what we did is we really thought about these innovation stations, what could they look like? What's the budget? And we originally, in our elementary school, put them in a common area at the end of one of the hallways where we had some extra space, bought round tables, um, we had stockless supplies. And we same thing in our middle and our high school we had it in common areas. What we found out after doing this a year was our, our first year is that in the elementary and the primary, having the, the innovation station in the hallway, it just didn't work. I mean, you know, think about like second or third graders completely unsupervised out at the end of the hallway themselves. It it, it we really had seen some really nice engagement and some increased confidence and risk taking happening in the formal classroom, but we really wanted to just level it up. And so what we did is we actually ended up creating an innovation station in every single classroom in our elementary school. So every single classroom has a nook that has an innovation station that has essentially like a mobile maker cart on it. And this team of teachers works every month to plan out monthly events. And so uh, what we found in the middle school is that the innovation station works very well being out in the hallway. Students are using it during advisory time, which for us is every day for 45 minutes at the last period of the day, and in after school. So the students are doing it in after school. And unlike the activities in the lower school, which are very much tied to the core content or the actual thing that they're learning in class, whether it be Native Americans in third grade or – Um, the the book they're reading Poppy in fourth grade or Humpty Dumpty in first grade, the activities are tied to the curriculum. In middle school and high school, it's more about enrichment and building that creative confidence. So it might be like designing a wind turbine or designing a a marshmallow spaghetti structure that is going to be the strongest. And so um, the kids are really engaged at that older age, especially middle school, when there's like a competition element to it. So they would all, they'll all create their innovation station, creation, and then um, they could typically win some sort of prize. But what we do is the teachers don't pick the winner. The students vote on who the winner will be. So we started, we started with that. Moving from there, what we went into was more the idea of maker education being a part of the formal curriculum um, more in the middle and high school. And so, again, it was primarily the STEM teachers that embraced this first. Um, We do have a room called our co-laboratory. That's what we call it. And it has round tables. It has whiteboard everywhere. It has craft supplies, makey-makeys, hummingbird robots, all sorts of, like, ed tech uh, support tools for making. And um, that's a shared space that students use. That has worked out really well. What we don't have in there is a 3-D printer or a laser cutter. In our high school, we do have a three D printer and some higher level tools. We have purposely not had another room to, to, to um, use all these tools because we have a we have tech shop. Have you guys ever heard of tech shop? Um, tech shop is a really interesting organization that is a full blown shop. It's in walking distance of our school, and we love getting the students off campus and walking over to tech shop. Like so, for example, maybe hard to see on the screen. But we had students, for example, create um, little laser cut tags um, on the laser cutter at TechShop. And part of that was, you know, getting them to get off campus, be in a community of makers. And then it's also very, like, organic professional development for faculty to be among a group of makers as well. So the recommendation I would have for sure to build that maker mindset is to also get your faculty involved in events within your community if, if you have that opportunity to, to, to work and collaborate with professional
1: makers. Um, I, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Project Zero at Harvard and a section of that, one of their projects is Project Spectrum and I know they emphasize the making and the manipulation of their physical environment. I remember reading about a first grader who was learning the alphabet and he was having a really difficult time forming letters so he actually nailed the alphabet with, with nails, mm-hmm. um, you know, tracing all of the lines. Um, they're also into this, like, the bridging of symbolic forms in their multiple intelligences. Do you feel like this theory fits what you're talking about with the makerspaces? If they're attaching it to the concepts they're learning in their regular curriculum?
4: Yeah, absolutely, for sure. I definitely think they are. And in, in the, the other piece I think that plays into that is what you just briefly hit on, and that's the idea of really students learning, intentionally learning, and building upon their strengths. So we, we do use a program here. It's called Strength Quest, and it uses the Gallup Strength Finder. So students as young as middle school can discover what their strengths are. Now, what we say to the kids is these strengths don't define the only thing that you can be because we want to make sure we don't limit that growth mindset potential. But it does help kids really see where what they can bring to a team, um, maybe something that they're innately good at. And so I think – It's so important, again, because we also primarily work with girls here at an all-girls school, to have them at that middle school age especially, and even now younger into second and third grade where we're doing a lot of robotics and making, that they get that confidence very early on. And so I think the biggest takeaway is not necessarily that, like, content knowledge is increasing in, in, in the maker classroom and impacting other areas, but it's about that skill, about that attitude and about that perseverance, risk-taking, confidence building that spills over into quote-unquote core classes that really we have seen has made a huge difference.
1: So it's mostly about the the collective learning aspect, the the feedback loops within the, the system, the design thinking, the, um, the diverse collaborative groups that, you know, getting as many different kind of heads in the room as possible.
4: Yeah, and then I think that public speaking and critique piece is so important, too. So when we first started trying to really build this culture here three or four years ago, um, students really struggled with that idea of like presenting their idea, not feeling shy about it, doing the critique piece. And as we've seen students, again, even in fifth grade when they become environmental eco-stewards and ambassadors for the environment of the Pittsburgh community where we're at, to then be in eighth grade and stand up in front of a panel of judges during the first legal competition and be so confident in their presentation. I think that's happening because we're just starting to um, the age at which we engage them with public speaking skills and advocating for an idea has is, is gone down got, gone down into lower grades, and it's we're seeing these students be such strong presenters and advocates of their ideas with confidence. At a younger age than what we've ever seen before. So, I really think the big win is on the soft skills side. And, and certainly, um, we have conducted internal research here that has, has shown that this active learning approach has, specifically in STEM, increased um, content knowledge by 5, 6, 7%. But we have seen those soft skills like confidence, risk taking, perseverance increase by 25, 30%. So, that's really what the big win is.
1: And do you think that's from forming, you know, within design thinking, these these feedback loops where the kids have to pitch their ideas and they have to communicate with each other, kind of Vygotsky's idea of using the community to stretch your knowledge. Do you think that's what's at work there?
4: I think that's what's at work there, but I think the other, yes, for sure. But the other piece of it that's been important for us is the contextualization, particularly of science, technology, engineering, and math concepts for, for girls. Because now they're not learning a line of code or about how sponges work in in eighth grade science, or about um, some other technical phenomenon just for the sake of it. It's contextualizing, creating narrative and story around what they're learning. They're finding that they're not learning to code just for the sake of code. They're doing it to solve a challenge for others. They're learning Autodesk Inventor to um, 3D print artificial limbs for people with real disabilities. And so I think that idea of contextualization and collaboration is, is equally as important as that communication and presentation skills piece.
1: Sorry, every time you say something, I kind of want to tackle another question. This one's more about when they are going to solve the, these problems and, you know, they're making a product, do you always sort of use um, this problem-based, like, where you're, you have to solve this problem to create this thing, or do you also use more fantasy narratives? Uh, Let me give an example of what I'm talking about, we had some some third graders, fourth graders studying um, insects and so we had them keep video logs over two weeks about themselves transforming into this insect and how their perceptions were changing about the world. Do you find that as valid or do you feel like it has to be some kind of finished product that's very real, contextualized to the real world?
4: I think as students start to get into middle school, yes. I think when it's contextualized and it's real world, by the time they get into middle school, especially I'm thinking like sixth, seventh grade, sixth grade really is the sweet spot, I would say. You kind of shift gears from that fantasy to the, the real authentic experiential. I mean, first grade did a really fun design challenge this year with a chip. Because they didn't want it, they read the book Humpty Dumpty, right? And they didn't want to necessarily use eggs and, and, and go that route, so we did chips instead. And one of the ways that the girls really became this chip is that they had to like name the chip. They had to like put googly eyes and design the chip. They had to build an armor for the chip. So when the chip was packaged in a little box and shipped the via, via the US postal service when the box came back, addressed to them with their name, and they opened it, they had to see if the chip survived or not. So, you know, I mean, there's still still an element of, like, um, you know, you're gaining empathy for a chip, you're kind of becoming the chip, but there's still that real-world piece of, like, mailing it through the U.S. Postal Service, opening up the box, and then doing that, like, documentation piece of how did your design work. And this is where the critique piece comes in, because what we made them do is then go around and critique three other girls' designs look in their boxes. So um, it's not just even about the individual critique of that first-grader. It's about her offering a critique to three of her peers as well.
1: Wow. Now, um, yeah, please do. Can I ask one more just sure, sure. on that particular topic? Um, I love looking, for example, at the high-tech highs resources where they publish a lot of their projects week one, week two, week three. Do you all have any kind of format like that where you share out um, a lot of your designs or um, is it mostly kept in house?
4: Yeah, I'm kind of smiling right now because I should do more of that (laughs) but um, you know it's one of those things in a small school, I don't know about you guys but Right now, I'm kind of doing three different jobs at the school, which is is super fun and I love it. But it doesn't always leave a lot of extra time to help with that documentation piece. Now, what I did create was this Innovation Fellows program that I know Chris you had mentioned in some of your questions. Um, And Innovation Fellows are teachers across the school that are doing a special fellowship in which they get release time and a stipend from their teaching duties to support all of these pedagogical innovations and curricular innovations across our program, and we are now starting to really do that documentation that we can share out. For the most part right now, unless I'm writing a blog post about it or tweeting about it, we aren't necessarily capturing that process in a more formalized way, but I I do think as we hopefully get more and more time for the innovation fellows to spend instead of maybe 10% of their role, 30 or 40% of their role, that's going to come as a part of that job description.
1: Well, we we would appreciate that.
6: (laughs) Um, Yeah, what what is your take on balancing? One way to motivate students on on the projects that they do is giving them a lot of options on on deciding key aspects of it. For example, uh, giving them a general problem and having them decide on the specific solution that they want to create. But how do you balance that with covering your curriculum and, and... changing the role of the teacher more as an advisor than, than somebody who who is going through a specific curriculum?
4: Yeah, so I think that's a really important question. And for us at Ellis, I should also say that we frame this approach to learning as active learning. Okay, And so active learning for us at the school, our goal is to really shift from a, And it was, and we're still getting there, but we've made some really great strides, shifting from a passive approach to learning to a very active approach, and this very much gets back to that research from the 70s and uh, moving towards active learning, right? And we have three key things that make up active learning, design thinking, maker education, and blended learning in the classroom. So even as young as fourth grade, our students are engaging in the flipped classroom and blended learning approach. And so oftentimes, what, what that means is during the school day they're doing the lab rotation model. I'm not sure how familiar you are with blended learning, but um, they're doing the lab rotation model where there will be different stations in the room. So you might have, say, five different stations in this activity or in this, um, during this day. And um, these five different stations, one is a group project, one is watching a, some sort of content video, one is teacher-led that's doing some type of uh, personalized support for students. One might be an arts or crafts teacher if they're coming in to be a part of a STEAM project. So, um, you know, using the data that we see in the technology, specifically with tools like Classroom Salon, which is a great tool out of Carnegie Mellon University that we can create. this This is very long and hard to explain in a short answer, but essentially we use this tool. Teachers will create their own videos using things like Snagit, Jing, Camtasia, whatever the case may be. They'll put it in Classroom Salon. They'll create tags, like confusing. I get it. Like whatever the teacher decides to create these tags. And as the students are watching a video or engaging with a PDF or some other type of digital media, the students can tag areas in the content that that either personifies a driving question that a teacher gave them to check that they understand the content or – that they're confused with, that they can tap. What teachers will often do then is that, that evening or that night, they'll look at the data analytics or the learning analytics that the software like this provides, and then they'll personalize their lesson the next day based off of what the data analytics are showing. So we are we are doing this flipped learning piece um, in a very, like, lab rotation during school in class way in fourth, fifth, sixth grade. But starting seventh, eighth, and in, into high school, We're taking and using 80% of class time, even in some of the AP classes that we have, that's now project-based, hands-on, and only maybe like 20% content um, lecture-based. And that would not be possible if the content was not put online in some type of classroom piece. And we've redesigned our whole schedule to support this model. So we have 80-minute block classes, even in our middle school, that happen every other day. So, in that in-between day is when they're engaging, watching the videos. So, the teacher will set up the content in the video, the students will watch it on their own, engage in either discussion or some type of um, classroom, salon, or verso activity. The teacher will review that and then personalize and spend maybe 20 minutes of that 80-minute block doing some type of review. So, um, you know, we don't have all the answers, we've only been doing this a few years. But we've seen very good results, and it definitely hasn't decreased the learning. It's the same, if not better, than what it was three years ago. So we, we feel like uh, we're moving the right direction, and that's why we've scaled it down now this year into fourth grade. And the biggest issue we had there, scaling it down into fourth grade, was definitely the parent piece. Because parents were like, whoa, 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 what's going on? My fourth grader is watching some video now? So, um, you know. And using Khan Academy is something we're doing in math right now as well for fourth grade. And we have, the teachers tell me in fourth grade that the students are learning their math facts and, and their math skills are unlike anything they've seen in recent history, in recent years. So um, hopefully, you know, I can blog or report back about that at the end of the school year. But the blended learning flipped classroom piece is an essential element to active learning, which is those three elements design thinking, maker education, and blended learning.
1: Uh, something I saw on your, your blog was about uh, your space designs, and we, we had a pilot here for a month with Steelcase, we, we loved playing with their equipment, but this idea of having the four student projection spaces, and then the teacher pro- projection space, the mobile teacher station. Um, how do you feel like this creates this active learning environment, as you all call it, and could you comment on the importance of space as a tool fomenting collaboration, how it inhibits... Pushes individual cognition development through interaction with their immediate community?
4: Sure. So uh, we really felt that it was important as a part of this strategy to revision our curricular program to have the furniture and the space that supports the type of learning that we want to promote. Yes, can you do this type of learning in a very traditional classroom with rows of desks? Sure, but what you would see is that students wouldn't sit in the desks. They would all just sit on the floor around the desk, or they'd move the desk to the perimeter of the room, and they would sit on the floor. So we knew that we needed to look into some furniture that would be more flexible, agile, and let the students move it around to what makes the most sense for them. So um, we have both Bretford and Steelcase furniture on our campus. We have purchased new furniture in all three divisions at our school, and we're hopeful to scale that into every single classroom. But we moved primarily uh, in two rooms: one in our high school that we call our active classroom was a part of a grant-funded project. Oh, excuse me, uh, was a part of a grant-funded project, and this is where we did this research study to really see if the combination of new space new curriculum and very rich technology would change what learning looks like. And we were very happy at the end of the day, you know, we have a white paper, we can share about this. We were very happy at the end of the day to see that, um, like I said, there was an increase in, in content knowledge, but also that really strong increase in terms of attitude. And what it signals to the students when they walk in the room is that something different is happening here. Something different is happening. and. When you're in these classrooms that we have, we call them active classrooms, there is no front of the room. So there's two projectors on each side of the room, so no matter where you're seeing, it's the front. Um, the chairs swivel and move, so you can easily look at your peers and give them eye contact and feedback when you're doing critique. There are um, 27-inch touchscreen computers by Lenovo that are at each desk. And this is really just a modern play on what Professor Bob Biker at NC State in 2008 found in his study called the Scale-Up Study, where um, whiteboards were used in these small groups. Um, We wanted to just try something different because when that study was done in 2008, these very large touchscreen computers were just entering the market. So um, as we we really were thinking about scaling this into high school and middle school starting here, we got these touch screen computers because it's that one note, that live annotation of um, notes and group sharing as a part of critique that has been so pivotal as a part of this. So even the computers themselves can be unplugged from the wall, lifted up and even placed flat on a desk where students can write on them and take notes. So, um, you know, it's all about comfort, agility, flexibility, um, in, in providing technology so at any moment any team in the room can live connect to the projector. So We use Crestron Air Media and there's big technology racks in one, each one of the closets now. Obviously this was a significant financial investment. But if you really want to shift your program to be more about active learning that is going to prepare us, students for these skills to be innovators and in the future jobs that are going to be out there, we felt like that this investment in the technology to support all this was really essential. So, um, you know, we've even created common areas and hallways that have, like, comfy chairs and, like, floor, floor lamps. And um, we used to only have one copier and scanner in our library. Well, that doesn't make it easy to share uh, things that students have created in a quick way so we put seven more print release stations with printing scanning copying ability on our campus so technology is definitely an important piece the space signals that something is going on here it's it's that comfort factor and again we we really look to see how we're engaging girls in particular and that eye contact and pass, that passively listening piece where a chair can be shifted and they can look at each other is very important now We have had lots of boys come over here and be involved in our programming at the school as well. And the feedback that I've asked some of them that they've given is that they like the fact that they can do this. So when they're feeling like really hyper and they don't want to sit still, they like that they can swivel around in the chair and it just move around really quickly when they want to. And so it just supports kids in so many ways when the space is really supporting the type of learning that is truly engaging them. Mm.
1: Uh, that was a lot of our same experience here with the Steelcase equipment. Um, we, we, we're building, or we're just finishing now, a global learning lab that has all of this wild screen space. It's only kind of one area, but we're trying to build more of this concept. Um, I noticed that you, uh, I think you said you're sending some kids to start up weekend. Um, I went to one of these in Austin over the summer. We got third place. Um, that's
4: awesome. That's really good.
1: (laughs) And one of the most helpful forms of feedback was when professionals circulated through on the second day, sat down with us, and gave us their real life experiences of what they thought about our our product. Um, How do you mix that student critique with real professional critique um, at your school?
4: Super important part of making design or problem solving authentic, right? And so when we first started doing design thinking as really a framework for how project-based learning happens here, we didn't always have real clients. And students would get frustrated. They would get frustrated because they would always be just kind of like working on something without the real piece or, the, or the, the expert piece. And so one of the things we did as a school, and we made sure this was a part of our strategic plan, was have a formalized way to approach partnerships in our community. So we have a, a, a little committee of teachers. It's called our Partnership Collaborative. And it's myself and three other teachers from all three divisions in our school that work together to curate and gather partners across the community. So we currently have 30 different organizations that our teachers can use to either bring in guest speakers, experts, have field visits where students can go do learning walks at these different organizations. And part of the role of the partnership collaborative teacher is to also essentially be an instructional coach, where they can coach teachers on how to use partners and and how to um, have partners be a part of the design process. And so, for example, let me give you one. We work with the Quality of Life Technology Center which is a joint program between Carnegie Mellon University and the University of Pittsburgh. So universities in your uh, community can be a big partnership uh, opportunity. And um, our students actually are learning how to design artificial limbs for real clients with disabilities. So we broke the students into smaller teams and they ended up coming up with four designs. One was for a man who had an um, amputation at his knee. And the students created something called the RecFin, which was a recreational swimming fin to help this man with the amputation at his knee. I worked with a group of students to design um, a, a hair time device for a woman who has Parkinson's disease. They did everything from interviewing her, gaining empathy, um, designing it in Autodesk Inventor, printing on a 3D printer, testing it. And, I mean, you know, they've actually been talking about the idea now of of getting funding to, like, actually try to produce some sort of real prototype and make this a real business. So when you have these real clients, it's an opportunity for your students to be social innovators, social entrepreneurs, helping the community. Um, Anytime there's a partnership, there needs to be a two-way street. So all of the partners we work with, it's not all about them giving to us. It's about the students giving back to them, too. And so um, it's a lot of work to do this, but it's extremely important when you're having a design lens on your projects to have real partners. And they always don't have to be from the outside. I mean, we've done a number of projects, like our AP Biology class that just did a project to create a more sustainable um, energy environment at the campus that we're on. And so these AP Biology students did go to um, a, a place called Phipps Conservatory here in Pittsburgh, which has one of the number two or three most green buildings in the globe in the world and they learn from these experts at FIPS about how they designed the uh, Center for Sustainability there and brought some of those ideas back to our campus and what they landed on is they're actually building light shelves that will be placed outside of windows so like my window right here would essentially have a light shelf in it where I could shut off the overhead light and it would take the natural light from the outside and bring it into the room further so there would be many periods of the day I could keep the light off. We're not doing that in every single room, but they're going to pilot it in a few rooms and see what difference it makes. So a partnership piece is a really, really important part of making the learning authentic for the kids.
0: Dr. Balmier, my name is Diego. I'm a technology teacher for elementary. Now that you mentioned the um, teacher fellows program, I, I would like to know, there seems to be a lot of collaboration, like like vertical articulation, also uh, between schools and subjects. How do you guys tackle the time issue? I know you, you talked a little bit about your schedule also, but what do you think are like the main challenges that teachers face when trying to uh, work together across schools or subjects? Yeah,
4: and you know, I mean, one thing I didn't mention at all. Um, is that we do have a number of interdisciplinary classes that we have uh, designed that don't fall into anyone's department. So you mentioned, Chris. I think global leadership by design. We have a couple of other classes: voice and vision, culture and context. So these classes, even when you like do your traditional like course booklet, the parents are going to look at for their daughter, particularly once they start to get in middle school. Um, These classes don't fit into any one discipline. They're co-taught by teachers from typically at least three disciplines. So that requires lots of planning time, right? And even though we've intentionally created this schedule to leave that every other day time period, the feedback we hear from our teachers still is that they don't have enough planning time. So one of the goals I have in partnering with other co-administrators at the school that are principals in the divisions is to really figure out a time, when can we have some dedicated planning time for these interdisciplinary project teams? And I'm sorry, but after school is not enough. Doing an after school, which our teachers are required t- twice a month on Wednesdays to stay after school for an hour, that's not enough. Because oftentimes those are meetings to talk about like logistics or an event or like some other bigger type of issue that the, the division wants to focus on. I'm hopeful that one of the things that we can do is just like we have project time for students, have a project collaborative time for teachers as well. And um, we're not exactly there yet. One of the things I think we could do is we have an 80 minute lunch period. And yes, it's not gonna be enough, but maybe during that 80 minute lunch period, we can dedicate 40 minutes of that to be like a team prep time. So that's that's one thing we're gonna try to start out with next year. But I just think candidly, um, having more people that are peer coaches who maybe are only teaching like 50% of their time, and then the other 50% of their time, they can accommodate the other teacher's schedule. They can come in and co-teach. I think that that's a really important point, but, you know, your administration has to support that. Luckily here we have a little bit of that with our Innovation Fellows program But I think for us as a school, which has been pretty successful of re-imaging our curricular program, to get it to the next level and have it not just be several pockets of innovation across the school could be to be systemically adopted at every single level. We need to have more classroom coaches.
1: The, that class sounds absolutely amazing. This global leadership, X design class. And I assume that's what you're talking about where you have three different disciplines working at the same time. At the lower levels um, regarding sort of design thinking, project-based learning, does that same kind of thing happen between disciplines or is it, are they all kind of chopped up into different sections?
4: No, it does. It does. The teachers, what's really great in our lower school is that our lower school principal, or as we call her, our division director, she's really good with not micromanaging how the teachers use their time. And so if the teachers want to just combine and create blocks of time during their day, as long as it's not interfering with the special that they have, that's fine. But what we've seen is sometimes they're even asking the specialist teachers to get involved. So if, let me give you an example. In fourth grade, they read the book Poppy. Okay? And in the past, our fourth grade classroom teacher that does the reading classes would have them read the book poppy and maybe like her first kind of bit of innovation was um, using haiku and having them respond to a discussion thread. Right? We've moved from beyond that and we've infused robotics into a reading class. And so um, my innovation fellow, Patrick and Julie, who's our lower school computer science teacher, work with Jess on this activity. And the girls went into groups of three where they had to take and personify a scene from Poppy by building a set design and then programming it to actually come alive and be interactive. And so that was an interdisciplinary project with at least three teachers that are technically doing different things, but they agreed to create the time in class because this was important. It wasn't a mandatory requirement. But but they're on board, and that's not happening everywhere. But I would say in our lower school, you know, at least at three of the grade levels, we have teachers, like, in second grade, they do the Metropolitan Community Project where the kids learn about um, how to be sustainable farmers and agriculture, and they build models. And this year what's really cool is they're going to learn how to take those models and add sensors to them. So, like, if you walk up and clap or you walk up and put a flashlight, it'll make something in the scene move. So, that's an intentional effort of teachers from different disciplines, even at the youngest ages, coming together to collaborate.
6: Um, one, one thing uh, we're very interested in is um, all of your work in promoting girls uh, becoming more uh, interested in, in STEM subjects. And uh, so far, have you had any results like on the other end of the spectrum? Uh, have you had increased enrollment in STEM subjects for the, for the high school, for example? or maybe uh, enrollment in, in the university for, for STEM careers?
4: Yes, so I have an answer both. I'll start with um, the university piece. So um, in the United States nationally, 15% of girls graduating high school major in a STEM major over the last two or three years at Ellis, our percentage has been 30. So we are double double the national average of girls enrolling in a STEM major in college. And I think it's because of our real intentional effort to use human-centered design and using making and this idea of um, building confidence in them even in the primary years that has really impacted. One other big win for us that I think has really increased enrollment in classes in high school by a factor of six, mind you, um, Just to give an example, uh, computer science was our second most popular elective in our high school last year. We had 19 students enroll. And just to give a perspective on average, we have maybe six to eight students that enroll for each one of our electives. So this was over double the normal amount of students enrolling in electives. And we think that's also because of our focus on the first legal league program in middle school. Um, I don't know if you've heard of First Lego League, but it's an absolutely fabulous program at the middle school years where students not only learn to program Lego robots on the table game, but they also define a research question. They build a prototype. They have to interview outside experts. Um, They they go to a competition and they meet with peers. And because we have had so many students involved in that program and another one that we're involved in called Future Cities that's about – modeling a future city and what that could look like. Over the last three years, we have seen these classes and the enrollment in very technical classes, even like engineering and AP physics, significantly increase. And we know it's because of what we're preparing them in primary and middle school.
1: We're overwhelmed. (laughs) Dr. Palmieri, um, we have about five minutes We have to walk into our our next uh, session, so we'll we'll break here. I want to thank you very much for your time. I can't wait to explore more of your blog, and we will be following whatever you all decide to publish as far as your project work. Um, I I love what's going on there.
4: Thank you. That's my goal, to get on that. Now you guys have me on camera saying it, so I'm going to commit to get some more of those projects up. Thank you.
1: Okay. Thank you very much. Take
4: care, guys. Bye. Bye.
1: So that brings us to a close of this session of Journeys in Podcasting.
0: And uh, remember, you can reach us out on Twitter. I can be found as Boy.
1: and I'm at, at uh, Chris Davis CNG. And what's Natalia's hashtag? Hers is at um, N
0: A Leon
1: should be it. Or is she Miss Natty? Is she at Miss Natty?
0: Well, we don't know. Totally look for both
1: <laughs> Look on our page. You can find her too. She's actually the creator of this project. Um, she's not here with us right now, but she she helps putting put together all of these sessions as well. Um, we will be presenting at ASA in Curaçao at the end of this month. And actually, tomorrow, I leave for South by Southwest Edu. So, I will be the guy walking around with a microphone, hunting people down to try to get them to join our podcast. We have sessions coming up on iPads and literacy and another really cool one on mindfulness in the classroom
0: Those two will be really interesting and we hope you really come back to join us for those Remember all these project comes about the fact we want to reach out and collaborate with you guys So really cool to get in touch with us totally check our Facebook page um, Journeys in podcasting and also we have a website now on weeks It's called also Journeys in Podcasting.
1: You can probably tell this is the end of a very long school day. So we will see you next time. Bye-bye.